You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by the hardcore wine dudes at First Bottle Wines. First Bottle is the sister site to the wildly popular one wine per day website, Last Bottle Wines. First Bottle is based in Napa, California, and the team is well connected to hundreds of wineries, brokers, distributors, and importers all over the world, and they have spent decades building trust with them. Offering quality wines at unbeatable prices is our top priority. You'll see lots of big names on First Bottle. They've got older vintages, collectibles, and approachable daily drinkers from every major wine region. They taste over 50,000 wines a year and know how to pick a winner. So visit firstbottlewines.com and use promo code GOLDENWEST at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. That's promo code GOLDENWEST at firstbottlewines.com. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, Golden West. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Steve Mathiason. Steve is the owner and winemaker at Matthias and Wines, along with his wife, Jill. He's a lifelong student of the craft of viticulture and a proponent of sustainable agriculture. Enjoy my conversation with Steve. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, it's great having you here. So I think the first thing to do is, before we start talking about wine and winemaking, let's get into a little bit about your background and growing up and what came before wine. Okay. Lots of stuff came before wine, but you know, like I, I got, I sort of the stuff that well, it's related to wine is I really got fell in love with farms when I was a kid because we, I, I was born in Winnipeg. We'd go out, we'd we had family in North Dakota. We'd go there every single year, stay with my, and my aunt Mar- aunt Margaret's. I'd ride her, I'd mow her lawn and just hang out in the wheat fields and climb trees and climb up on top of the tractors and sit in the seats and stuff. And my parents got divorced, and, um, they, and when I was seven, they shipped me to a different cousin's farm, and I spent. The, my parents were anthropology professors, so they were very urban for Winnipeg. So we, so it was like you know we lived in this old neighborhood in Winnipeg, and so it was, I, it was really fun to get out to these farms. And so like my other, and we had the family in North Dakota and Manitoba. So I got went up to when my parents got divorced, I got shipped up for the summer, and you know just spent the whole summer out there just. Again, climbing on equipment and just breathing in the smell of, you know, the earth and trees and the wheat and 
diesel and animals and I, that was, you know i just thought there was this eden that, that's what i that's what i like and um but how the heck do you you know that like that was their family farms like you know it wasn't us so never really considered that i had that option to do that but then get you know being a bit older and get and um getting into um you know i was you know i went to a special school because i had add and we had gardening in grade school and had animals and stuff. And, you know, I got really big into the environment. I remember Greenpeace, this is like in the seventies, came and gave a presentation and I got really into that and t- started tying together like the land and use of the land and the environment and degradation versus repairing and healing and all that stuff around the land. I kind of like that got into my head really when I was still in like fifth, sixth grade. And so then getting in, you know, to like punk rock and stuff in the junior high and high school, the whole idea of self-reliance, DIY. And it was like, maybe you don't have to be born with like a full-fledged farm. Maybe there's ways to get back to the land on your own terms, you know. And so I started thinking about that and fantasizing about that. And meanwhile, gardening and, you know, I'm not 21 yet, but I'll brew my own beer, you know, you know, and um that whole sort of just it was really just taking control of y- your own food and your and making you know make, if you can't afford something you're not allowed to buy it and you can make it yourself you know and we didn't have any money you know my parents were anthropologists but when they split up my mom had was, wasn't able to pick her career back up when she moved us down to tucson so it was you know yeah it took a lot of creativity you know growing up for stuff and making stuff or finding it used or whatever and it was all kind of so all that was kind of in my mind kind of connected and then you know so i was into gardening in san francisco and more beer brewing and did that for years and food and cooking and um you know if you don't have money to go to a nice restaurant who cares because you can make a killer meal at home with stuff from your own garden and figuring out a lot of it's so interesting we were like basically interesting like 1980s punk rock was not that different than like 2020 hipster i guess with the sourdough and pickling and everything was that, you know, really is one long continuous thread basically. And so, you know, we were like, we'll just make, you know, ferment our own stuff and make our own bread and all of that. And so, um, so that was really what I was doing and working as a bike messenger when I got out of college and, and found out about UC Davis and it, and I was like, Holy crap, there's a whole university dedicated to agriculture. I didn't know that. And they, they have a, and they, I realized I could go there and study international ag development and learn, like learn organic farming and actually have a career in traveling overseas and helping people convert to organic farming. And then I, and then hopefully I could save enough enough money to buy someplace of my own. But luckily I got an internship right when I got there working for a consulting company that consulted on wine grapes. And so that uh, helping them reduce their pesticide use and almond orchards. And so it was, um, just a complete stroke of luck in that regard, that internship I found that tied everything together from home fermentation and food and in all of it, you know, organic farming. And, um, and so that was kind of, that was like their mid nineties, early mid nineties, like 94, 95, something like that. And that just kind of set me on my current path basically to where we are now sitting here in our winery. I never, never anticipated that. Yeah, you were really early on there, brewing your own beer, having your own garden, kind of that farm to table. <laughs> you mentioned 
the hipsters doing sourdough bread and pickling. And I feel like it's kind of been ingrained into the culture. And you think about Michael Pollan and some of his books, and you think about like the movie Food Incorporated, which I saw on Netflix years ago. Some of this stuff is into the mainstream now. But you were really doing this and living this lifestyle, you know, way back when people weren't really thinking about it as much, I think. Obviously, San Francisco and certain pockets probably had it more than others. But that was also right on the cusp of the early 90s when we just had this huge commercialization and industrialization of food and, and sugar added to all these beverages and things. That's kind of how I grew up in the early 90s, Capri Sun and all that stuff. How, how do you see that transition of what thing, where we've come now? You know, it's been, there's been a backlash of the, all the sugar and all of the, you know, corporatization and, and coming down and ruining of the food system the whole time, really, you know, from, I don't know, last hundred years. And, um, and so like, like, I'm like, I really think that right now it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing how it has gotten more into the mainstream, the idea of having more control over what you're going to put in your body and thinking about it, even, you know, it was, um, because it was like, like when you're talking about the Capri Sun and give the kids, you know, a little Mylar bag of sugar water, um, seems so bizarre but it was like no you didn't no one thought of it and it's and wine is no different it's like like giving high 100 point scores to like 16 percent alcohol wine that's totally unhealthy that wasn't the healthiness wasn't even a consideration it's a generational thing too you know with the i i think like i don't know the you know throw the boomers under the bus but basically it's like they are you know not connecting the food the mainstream culture of the boomer is not connecting that what you put in your body is going to affect you and, ha- and thinking of food as, as nourishment and food, you know, or as poison dependingly. But meanwhile, the same boomers, more, the more hippies were like all about it, right? You know, granola, yogurt, all these things that we, they're, they, you can buy at a freaking Starbucks at the airport. Like as a kid, my mom made her own yogurt, right? And, you know, you couldn't buy yogurt. You had to go to like the, health hippie co-op in order to get yogurt or to like a Greek store or something. Right. And people thought you were weird for eating yogurt, you know, it's saying, you know, so granola, all of that. And so it's been there the whole time, but it's, it's just continuing and it's all tied to, it's tied together with, with natural wine it really comes out of that same um, philosophical sort of thread and about thinking about what you're putting in your body and taking more control of again and getting away from corporatization and dogmatism and top downism of what, you know, the control of wine, whether, you know, just like with food, you know, farm to table. And it's, it's, um, you know, the, 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 none of the stuff's in a vacuum and it's like Michael Pollan had, had this really important role in sort of like um, really pushing advancing the this kind of notion of food but it's um it was really you know it was already happening and it has been for a long time and it's and we're getting into the into i'm really distraught a little bit about the effect on the small artisanal producers right now with the coronavirus because high-end restaurants have been keeping a lot of the craftsmanship developing through this due to the resources there but 
and then it fil- can filter into broader society. But but in general, it's a real golden age right now where of food where you know where people are you know when when you have like a, a national trend is that people are ha- keeping their own sourdough starters. That is a great um, example, great moment that we're living in. Weirdly enough, that um, with all the craziness that's going on with the globe, with the climate and everything else, that we're but there's a lot of enlightenment that's happening too, and 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 um, priorities. You know, it's so interesting to see what like the tech boom in this in the San Francisco, what people are how people are choosing to spend their money. You know, and they're not buying Lamborghinis as much as they're, you know, buying really great handmade food. And so that's a good thing for society. Some, you know, we may roll our eyes a little bit and, you know, go, well, you know, that's overpriced or whatever, but it's the right, it's absolutely the right direction to be prioritizing this stuff, you know, you know, where, where when farm to table is such a thing that it's actually, um, people are greenwashing their food through farm to table. That's a good thing. That means that we're really on the right track in terms of where we're headed as a food culture. Yeah. You bring up a lot of really good points there. The one thing I didn't want to forget to ask you about was some of the punk uh, bands that you liked back in the day. Oh yeah. Before we move on to some of these other conversations about organics, biodynamics and get into all your wines and projects here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it was a lot harder to find out about stuff, you know, and so, so there's a lot of stuff that at, at the time I was like basically anything I could get my hands on. I liked, you know, like the only place to get punk growing up in Tucson, Arizona was the music was to go to this one record store by the university that had like an imports bin and that's where they would stick all the punk. And so I just got anything I could get my hands on, but it was all like this 80s, you know, dead Kennedys, minor threat, bad brains, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, just heart, you know, the vandals, the adolescents, the circle jerks, you know, all of that, that, that was anything I could get my hands on back then. And um, it's been fun to see what people have done, it, the, 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 all those, those old punkers and what cool stuff they've done over the years too. And a lot of them are Henry Rollins is still really relevant. Ian McKay for minor threat. Um, you know, it's, you know, Jello Biafra has had so much to say over the years. So, um, but yeah, that was, I was straight ahead 80s, 80s punker, which was, we, it wasn't, it was like, you just let anything you would, you know, any, any of the above, it was all good. You're just happy to find out about it and get it. There were like my entire high school, there were like four of us that liked punk rock. It was teeny tiny just- scene then. That is funny, yeah. And I think there's some parallels there with winemaking too, because you can see, as you mentioned, some of the 80s punk bands, and then you look to kind of that next generation, like Bad Religion, and a bunch of bands that kind of got inspired and kind of grew up in that scene, and then transitioning to kind of after that even. When you look at winemaking, and when you look back on, on your career here and some of the, your previous work experiences, so Spotswood, Araujo, Dalaval, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars. What have you learned from each of your kind of relationships and places you worked be where you are now and making the wines that you are? I feel like, you know, we talked about some of the uh, 
the 90s cabs, the, the higher point rated wines with big alcohol. And, you know, the pendulum has kind of swung back the other way. And, you know, you were in the movie some and, and you look at a lot of the content coming out from New York Times and Wall Street Journal, like mainstream, you know, articles about natural wine and things like that. But, you know, I feel like there are some winemakers who are at a certain age who grew up learning. Maybe it's learning about what not to do. I don't know. Or maybe it's taking taking the good parts and then ma- making it your own. Well, it's the set, it's taking the good parts and making it your own because of the 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 greats. Whether you know, like Spotswood or Delavalle are greats, you know, but we go back a generation, Chateau Montalena or Stagsheep Wine Cellars. I mean, each of these generations, whether it's the Paris Taste, you know, whether it's Mondavi, they all at that moment in time broke the rules, and you know, mm-hmm. um, and did something new and cool and different, you know, like like Robert Mondavi. You know, everyone was saying that Napa was like jug wine, and he was like, "No, we can make world class wine here," and and, and um, refused to submit to that this is a jug wine region. You know, and then like this, like you go to like Stacy Wine Cellars, Ridge, Chateau Montalena, um, You know these um, the one you know the, this generation that got started in the end of the sixties, early seventies. I mean, they're heavily influenced by the back to the land movement and came you know, but and came in Napa and wanted to do wine and they picked a little riper, which at the time was nothing like what we consider ripe now, but for that time was a little riper, did a little bit less manipulation of the wine. Wasn't as, you know, they weren't putting it through all the centrifuges and all that shit that the bigger places were doing. And they, and they were, um, you know, trying to make wine more in the mold of a, of a regular vigneron and, um, in Europe. And so that was pretty radical. Um, you know, my comments would be, you know, another example from that same era. Like I talked to Bob Travers, he used to, you know, who used to own my comments and he, I, and I said, I told him one time, I said, you know, thanks for keeping the, um, lower alcohol earlier picking style relevant, you know, all those years. And he says, he, he said, when he started, he, he got a bunch of crap from all the other vintners because he picked too ripe. Because they were all picking that's 20, funny. 20, yeah, right. They were picking at twenty and a half to twenty one and a half bricks, and he he was picking at twenty two. And then later on, he got crap for picking not ripe enough because he picked at twenty two the whole time, basically for six for fifty years. And so, you know, say Warren Winiarski picked riper also. He picked at like twenty two, and so um, you know instead of at twenty one. And so he, Warren told me that they used to freak out if it would got above 21 and a half and he was like no i think it get it could get riper and he'd pick it at 22 and a half you know and so and you know and the cult the, so the, the cult wines that got started basically in the 90s so these guys were getting started in the late 60s early 70s ridge is another example you know doing things totally you know trying to you know totally differently in santa cruz and you know and but also what taking the good for what was came before them because you had Martin Ray down in Santa Cruz, who, if you remember, like, you know, Almaden wine was like cheap jug wine. But the, the, the that brand was actually Martin Ray actually made that wine back in the 1940s and 50s down in the San Jose area. That's all paved over now, Santa Clara Valley. 
and um, and he brought clones over and French barrels over and was making the best Pinot and Chardonnay in the country at in the 40s and 50s under Almaden. And then he sold that and started Mount Eden up there, I, I, I want to say in the 1950s. So Ridge had that down there in Santa Cruz to look at and then go, huh, let's, um, you know, let's take that on set on those shoulders and do something, you know, really cool. But then in the nineties, the, 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 the Deva, Della Valley, Arajo, all those, they really focused on, they took the vineyard, they took the focus on the vineyard with Tony Soder, who is the winemaker for a lot of them to a whole nother level of attention to detail, you know, like, caring about canopy management, about light environment, about, um, you know, you're managing your crop yields and really taking a lot of care in the cellar. And that was kind of revolutionary. And so, I, you know, so even, you know, we look at, you know, so, you know, and then there's always all the Johnny come lately is that follow, you know, but, um, but I think that there's a whole succession of people doing cool stuff that you know that you can really look at and learn from yeah you mentioned how with the paris tasting and all along the way with mandavi they were doing something that was kind of new and different at the time and whether it was controversial at the time and a lot of people i think have forgotten that because it was so many years ago they think that was just the status quo or how things were but i think that's a really good point to remind people about yeah they were all that was like that was you know they were all like there's their first vintage, second vintage, third vintage was that kind of thing. These were brand new young wineries that um, and so it was really pretty radical and cool for them to like go back all the way back to like France, you know, for the Sendless Vine, you know, that whole tasting thing was this was not the big guys against the big guys at all. And how do you feel about the natural wine movement, if I can use that phrase? There's been, you know, we've seen the In Pursuit of Balance group come and go. They really accomplished a lot during their time. Mm-hmm. You know, you were in the, the Psalm series, which was a great kind of four way for people to understand the nuances. And a lot of people just weren't really exposed and were kind of drinking, let's say it was grocery store wines or even cult cabs or something where it kind of opened up a whole new world. And then we had orange wines and skin contact kind of become a thin thing for a while. But how are you looking at kind of the landscape now? And we can get into your wines and some of the other projects. One that just comes to mind right away is Ashes and Diamonds and putting that new face on Napa and um, and bringing the old world wines kind of back into style and and style is really what they're doing when you go and see the winery and and the design and just the atmosphere that they're creating there mm-hmm. so um in pursuit of balance was really important i was actually we were actually um, part of in pursuit of balance um with our chardonnay and traveled all over the place with with them and and it was the in pursuit of balance um, period was was really important for creating a lane in because in California, unfortunately, in the last twenty years or so, let's say twenty to twenty five years, this sort of like um, I'm going to say 
myth, I guess, of um, was created around like the sunshine of California, and that the it was you know, sort of like this excuse for higher alcohol wine became like this is the natural expression of our terroir. You know, this this is what our sunlight gives us is the higher alcohols, the richer jammy wines. And so, um, and some people love those wines, whatever, but plenty of people do. But it, unfortunately, that story worked really well in the sense that then natural, that California wines got their own lane kind of in the wine landscape for this place endowed with sunshine, kind of like then kind of lumped in with like Australia, which suffered from the same sort of problem that the same myth got created around the country of Australia, which is, you know, was way very simplistic, just like it was for California. And so it became so well in the wine world, you're looking for to distill things down and it's complicated. And so California is where you go to for your jammy rich wines. If you want elegance, you go to France, but you know, if you want, you know, more sort of idiosyncratic, you go to Italy or it just becomes these like pigeonholes basically. And then if you're a producer in one of these regions, it's difficult to do something different. And we really suffered from that. And as did a lot of people in California who basically, if you're trying to make elegant wines in the marketplace, they'd say, and in some ways weren't as common. And they'd say, they'd say, well, you know, um, I don't need it. You know, I, your wine doesn't taste like a California wine. Well, it tastes totally like a California wine. It's like, no, you know, we're, we're going to go California. We're looking for rich, ripe, fruity. You know, I had a guy, a, a buyer at um, freaking, what was that place? It's um, Delmonico's in New York. Old school wine buyer sitting there with his napkin tucked into his tuxedo as he ate his caprese salad during our tasting, like um, with, all, with the wine his wine team clustered around him and he tastes, tastes my wine and says, why would I buy this? If I want fake Europe, I'll just buy real Europe. <laughs> you're in, you're, he goes, you're in Napa. Why don't you make Napa? And it was just like, that was, you know, uh, that was an extreme example of, of the attitude basically. And so in pursuit of balance was like, Hey guys, restrained wines are a legitimate expression of our terroir here. No less legitimate than the ultra ripe wines. Just because it's sunny doesn't mean that everything's automatically ultra ripe. And so if we band together in numbers and do these tastings and just say that, and it actually worked. And so it changed the conversation so that um, when people think of California, then they don't say, oh, it's going to be ripe and jammy. They say, I wonder what kind of style they're doing. And that's all you, you can ask for because then it becomes a place of discovery and an up in a place that for as a wine lover, it's a place to discover different styles of wine. And as a wine producer, you can follow a direction and you're not forced into a, you know, be, into make, you know, one particular type of winemaking wine style. And so in pursuit of balance is really helpful in that regard. You know, you had, you know, old, Mount Eden and you have, you know, middle guard, like Litter Eye and everyone just together, you know, Calera and, you know, Hirsch and you, you just had enough and, you know, newer people like Liquid Farm and then, and it was enough critical mass to get the serious wine people. And, and hopefully there were a lot of aha moments and then they left going, okay, 
I don't, maybe I don't like these wines, but clearly this is something that California can do. And that was, you know, so that was the goal there. And, and it was, I think it was successful. And so it, and, and it kind of did its job. Um, yeah. Yeah. And how do you think about balance in wine from the standpoint of obviously a consumer looking at the wine that can look at alcohol levels or they can kind of taste that. And I know that has to do with the picking decision and things. And we can talk about picking, but when you're looking Mm -hmm. at balance, you know, pH, alcohol, there's all these different moving parts. How do you kind of look at it? Okay. So I look at it. um, I look at it from a flavor standpoint and I look at it, I look at it from a mouthfeel standpoint. And I look at it from a food pairing standpoint and a, and just a kind of gestalt standpoint, you know, so because I mean, for, um, to me, a balanced wine, for me, I, I like freshness I like it a lot. I like crunchiness, but then so freshness, well, so to me, you have, you have, so you have all these um, opposing forces. You know, so if if you put them all together, you kind of get a sphere. But really, it's made. If you imagine a sphere made up of like dumbbells, okay. So you have all these opposing forces, but they're all, but you, you, they all tie together, hopefully, into like one notion of balance. But you can't. So you can't say, okay, it's the alcohol is such, so therefore it's balanced, or the acidity is such, and therefore it's balanced. It's there's a lot of different pieces in there, but like I think that flavor is a bigly big part of balance, and so flavor. And I think that there's some physiological things. So like, I think red fruits are more refreshing than black fruits. Greenness might be too refreshing. You know, if you think about like a fruit salad, you know, strawberries is an analogy I use a lot. Strawberries are the, are the base of the salad. Strawberries in and of itself might be a little boring. Blackberries in there give it a rich accent. Blackberries by themselves could be a little cloying, you know, but then, and then, but so strawberries, accent with the blackberries balances the the richness with that nice core of strawberry. And then if you have some mint leaves in there, then that gives you brightness. And then together that's a balanced fruit salad. Right. So, and, or, but, but then it's, this is like, um, archetypal really, because if you think about like a salsa, it's the same thing, but you know, if tomatoes are your core, let's say, and then you have, cilantro and you have you know jalapenos on the green side but then you know ripe tomatoes and then um you know in this case it might be the salt that or something that gives you the or what you're what you're eating it with then like that provides the counterpoint to the richness of like the melted cheese or something and that's where the balance comes in so so flavor i think is really a big part of the balance in wine so when I say I really prize freshness, but freshness without richness is very, is, doesn't have the, you know, it's unappealing, doesn't have the umami, but richness without freshness is cloying. So there's a balance between the freshness and the richness. And just like, you know, and then, you know, like acidity, the sweetness of the alcohol and the acidity are really important to the balance. And then the al- and then there's, there's mouth things that go on with, you have tannin and acid that work together. So more tannin, less acid, more acid, less tannin there's, you know, there's only so much about you can do about it in the winery. So you're trying to pick it at the right time. And that's where viticulture really comes in because 
vine, vine balance. So the balance between vegetative and fruiting and the timing of ripening and the amount of water the vine has available to it, the amount of fertilizer, like keep, you know, growing the vine in a balanced way, the fruit will most likely be balanced as well if you're in a good site. And, and so then, you know, because you're not, when you cook, you can adjust the salt. When you're making wine, you're, you're trying not to adjust anything. You're trying to just sort of ferment it and get it into the bottle. And so you have a little bit of say, like when you can press it or fermentation temperatures or how many pump overs you're going to do, like zero you know, level of extraction, you know, that kind of thing. But really the most of the balance I think is comes viticulturally and comes, and then your picking timing. But, but it's, um, it's very multi kind of factorial to me, but you know it when you see it basically. I like that analogy thinking about making a salad and you mentioned the strawberries and the mint and different elements that actually makes a lot of sense to me. I'll quote Eric from the New York times who's a prominent wine writer has talked about your wines as being, I'm trying to look for it here. They bear an agricultural stamp as fresh and lively as the best produce from a farmer's market. So how do you view your experience and background coming from farming? And do you think that has really, you know, impacted your winemaking style and being able to show that freshness, as you mentioned earlier in your wines? Well, I mean, that's kind of everything for me. And so, um, so like my sort of, and Jill's like, like that's my wife are, we're really interested in, horticulture right and the horticulture the plants in healthy soils and soil microbiology and in the history of the crop and the you know these and the, the great varieties we use are all heirlooms you know in some cases they're well over a thousand years old they've been passed on like vegetative propagation like a sourdough starter just cutting the cutting original seed like pinot noir carol meredith told me might be as old as three thousand years old but over 2000 years wow. old. So that we're, when that seed germinated, it's been passed on vegetatively for that long. So these plants are really special. They've been prized by so many different generations. So I'm not so much like a soil. I love soil. I'm a huge soil geek, but with our wine, we're not as much trying to sort of like capture the minerals in the soil somehow in our wine. I'm really interested in the life, the life of this plant that is this, you know, really cool heirloom varietal that, and what is that, what does that taste like it grown in that spot? When that plant's growing there, what does that fruit taste like? And because, and I think that we, we can agree that it's good, you know, like, we, you know, um, people wouldn't have kept that thing going for a thousand years if it was a shitty variety. You know, it's a great tasting, you know, whether it's Ferment or Schiovatino or, you know, Negro Amaro, they're all great varieties. And so, um, so what do they taste like and what do they taste like, you know, grown here? And so, so that, so the purity really comes in there because, you know, if you, if we mess it up in the, you know, with either heavy handed with over extraction or over oaking or under extraction or, what have you, or do a bad job of growing it, then, you know, then you don't get to taste it basically. And so it's the purity is that is 
like what ex- it's it's exactly the same philosophy as if if you're at Ellis Waters and you get a carrot, an organic carrot from Bob Kennard's farm in Sonoma, what does that carrot taste like? So she's going to figure work with her team at Chez Panisse to like figure out how to like really get the carrot essence to you with that carrot when they cook it, you know? And, um, and that's kind of, you know, that's, it's that same kind of farm to table kind of, of um, core philosophy that it's almost sounds like a cliche anymore, but that's what I was saying earlier that that's a, it's great that it's turned into a bit of a cliche because it's the right direction. But for us, it's not a cliche. It's not trite. We, that's what we're trying to do is, how do we communicate? How do we grow these vines really well in really good, healthy living soil? And then in the winemaking process, try to transform them into wine or shepherd that process so that you really get at the essence of what that bunch of grapes actually tastes like. That's the purity. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about picking earlier you you had mentioned that what's your philosophy around picking decision and do you agree with a few other people i've talked to where they say it is the most important decision that uh, is to be made among obviously many other ones but how do you look at that it's de- definitely the most important decision in my mind also um you know that i mean because the ripening is changing every single day and there's like a six week to two month window where you could pick that fruit um, and so you're, you know, you're tasting it, you're assessing all of your senses, you're looking at the vines, you're using all your experience with vines in general, with that site, with that variety, looking at the weather, thinking about things, tasting that fruit and trying to decide if this is the right day. And that's, and so like I do all my own, like, even though we have a really small, but really good team, I do all my own fruit sampling. Because I need, because for our wines to taste like a Matthias in wine, you know, I have to decide when to pick it basically because, and then that's why you can see that thread through all of those wines. And, um, and so it's, you know, I mean, it goes and the fruit goes through these waves basically and different varieties are kind of different in terms of, but in, in generally there's most varieties have, have like red wine have like two main waves. But, you know, like you basically, or peaks, I guess, maybe, but, you know, you kind of go through like, it's just like a little bag of water, sugar and acid. And then there's like a first peak where it actually, where it tastes like fruit, where it's like, this tastes like a delicious piece of fruit, like a, like a plum off the tree, you know. And then, and that's when we typically pick. And then that kind of fades. And then it be, then it gets back to being kind of like a sweet bag of of um, you know watery sugar again, not as much, not as tart, and kind of sits there for a while, and then it gets rich and kind of luscious, and it tastes a little bit less like a fresh plum and more kind of like a blackberry if you're berry picking and you got a really good ripe one, and that is where most modern cab is picked nowadays, that second wave. And, you know, talking cab, but it, this applies actually to a lot of varieties. And then, and then it turns into like that kind of, then if you leave it out even longer, it gets into kind of like a 
a jam character, which is actually just literally is the same chemical reaction as cooking it on the stove to get that those jam molecules, and then then it kind of you know gets raisiny pruny basically. And some people picking that raisiny pruny, that's their house style, but that could be a solid six or seven weeks after we pick it. And so, so that first wave is pretty fleeting, that first peak. And so generally, um, you know, comes and goes in five days or so. And so that's what I'm trying to, what I'm like looking for and trying to, to um, grab the fruit at um, right when, you know, at that moment in time. And so everything has to line up in the vineyard. Like we, in order for it to be good, rich, ripe tannins at that time, you know, we like our cover crop in this that we plant the year before, and then the way we manage our cover crop in the spring. Way like when I say manage, when do we mow it? Do we let it grow tall and mow it? Do we keep it short? Do we disc? Although I'm trying to go no till on everything, but um, like how much water we're leaving for the plants basically is in the springtime is another really important decision for the wine um, quality and wine style. So when we're in the springtime and we're deciding whether to mow, I'm thinking about what the, the ripeness of the fruit, because what we're trying to do is leave the enough water in the soil so that the vines can just get to, to barely make it to that first red fruit peak before they just completely poop out because they're out of water. If I, I'm working for someone who wants to pick the fruit in the red fruit, I'm sorry, in the black fruit peak a few weeks later, we have to leave more water in the soil so that it can make it that far. Cause if it crashes too soon, they're not going to be happy because it's not going to get, it's not going to have enough energy to get to the second peak of flavor development. But for us, I don't want the second peak of flavor development. So we're really pretty hardcore on getting rid of water early with our cover crops. But again, it's site by site within the vineyard. We might mow one half the vineyard. We don't mow the other half the vineyard. When we shoot thin also, the stronger ones we shoot thin later, the more energy is diverted. The weaker vines we shoot thin earlier so that more energy is saved in the shoots we're going to keep. When we do our leaf and lateral removal, when we do our fruit thinning, um, you know, all you know, it's all about trying to time it so that the that it's like pacing in a race or something like that. So it uses all its energy up and it and it runs out of energy and the leaves basically turn yellow in the fruit zone and fall off right on the day of harvest that's the goal yeah that really shows how as your quote uh, your kind of famous quote wine is made in the vineyard by now um really goes to show how that process takes place when you look at natural winemaking and i've talked to a couple people who say well i say you know natural winemaking and they get defensive and they'll say well i'm not an i don't consider myself a natural winemaker and then i'll talk to other people who uh, you, maybe you wouldn't think they're making something like a natural wine but they consider their themselves a natural winemaker because they have native fermentation and there's you know, there's all these other reasons they cite. So I know the word and the labeling, it might get kind of lost and maybe it is meaningless to some extent, but how do you view just the landscape of kind of natural winemaking as a whole? You can look at like mega purple, you can look at too many sulfites or too much and it does occur naturally. And then you obviously need it to ship and stay fresh. Um, but then you can look at 
all the other stuff that's added. I was reading there's over two or 300 uh, chemicals and pesticides that can legally be added to wines. And these are obviously, you know, industrial kind of grocery store wines that you're buying, kind of the McDonald's of wine, where obviously they're going for the same thing and it tastes the same every vintage, which is shouldn't happen <laughs> with the, yeah. with with wine, as you talked about. And they're trying to dial in the exact 13.5% alcohol or what, whatever it is. It's just kind of like a chemistry equation. But how do you kind of look at all of that together and how would you, I guess a good question is what would, what would you look for in wine, other wines that you're drinking uh, without naming, naming labels um, and for, for things that you would classify of, of a wine that you would want to put into your body? <laughs> okay. So, so um, yeah, that's a toughie because, because there isn't necessarily a totally agreed upon definition of natural wine. And, and and I think there's a pretty good consensus on the actual techniques involved, but I'm not convinced that really captures the spirit of it. Um, you know, and I, um, and so we, you know, like uh, we, we have wines that are by the letter of the law are, are, would be natural wines. And we have wines that probably would not because we filter them, you know, Let's say if I, I decide that wine, I thought wine be better if it was filtered, so I'm going to filter it. And so, so we don't use that the descriptor of natural wine for our own wine because I, back to my punk rock roots, I feel you know like I don't want it. We're not going to be posers about it, basically, and because um, people that are really committed to it deserve that term for their wines. Um, that, that but I you know so. Because, because really, I think if you're going to use that term, you're going to go all the way, and and that's what that wine's what that's for. And so, if there's a mishap biologically, then it's in the cellar. It's not a mishap. It it's like a um, this is what what it was. Just like back in the old punk rock recordings, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. They go into the recording studio. It's one take, and if you hear someone talking in the background, that's on the take. And that's kind of um, okay. That's cool. That's part of it. You know, for me, where you know, like I really, I, I'm really a geek about the craftsmanship, and so, um, so you know, we're, we we work really hard at sanitation in the cellar, and we work really hard. Again, I want to get the purity of that fruit through there, and so, um, so I'm really careful. And again, if we need to filter a wine, for example, I'm, we're going to filter it if I because I want you to taste that fruit that's what i'm proud of and that's what you know that's our trip and so that but there's no way we're gonna you know we're our vineyards are certified organic there's no way we're gonna put any pesticides or anything like that in the vineyards or the wine and so um you know in terms of what i want to put in my body is i want to put um wine that's made from vineyards that are organic that people don't use weird additives in the cellar and that are made by real people with a real vision, you know? So that's, um, you know, that means small producers, not focus group, corporate wine, basically. And so that's, kind of, you know, um, and then and then how they want to call it, I'm not really that concerned about, you know, but it needs to be made by a real person. And I really want it to be organic if I'm going to, you know, for what we're going to drink it in our house. 
Yeah, I think that gives people something to think about there. And um, to me, that that does make sense. Let's get into some of your wines and some of the projects that you're working on now. We're going to link here in the show notes so people can go buy some wine if they haven't tried it. The first ones to look at here are just the Mathiasen wines. So we talked a lot about freshness. We talked about your philosophy there's a lot of other content out there on you as well, a few other podcasts and things. So people who haven't heard should go listen to some of the other stuff as well. I remember the first time I tried a Mathiasen wine, it was the Cabernet. And it was it was pretty mind-blowing in the sense of I tried so many, you know, starting out, it was grocery store wines for me. And then I moved up to, like you said, smaller producers and those type of things, but it was still more over-extracted wine, and I had never tasted something like that where I could taste the nuance and taste a lot of the flavors and the freshness, but but still recognizing, like, this is Cabernet, this is Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, so it, to me, that was the experience, like, wow, this, is, this was really great, like a lower alcohol wine where I could have maybe one or two extra glasses instead of just the one, instead of kind of hitting the wall and then being able to pair it with food better for me. Uh, but I know that's r- rung true for so many people. So let's get into some of the wines that you're excited about now from your okay. personal label. Okay. Well, I'm so ex- really excited about Cabernet and it's, um, it's really because it A, it's a great variety, a really flavorful variety that does really well in Napa. B, um, it's people kind of know Cabernet, and so as as a sort of farmer and winemaker, there it's a it's really challenging in a really good way because we have a, a we have a very strong point of view, as you can tell. And Cabernet is a great way to bring our point of view into the conversation because most people have have an experience with Cabernet. So when there's like with you, when they try ours, there's, they can like it or not like it, but they know where we're coming from. Whereas with a rare variety like Schio Patino or something, no one's ever tried it. So it's, it's, it's not as a way for us to sort of enter our voice into the conversation in the same way with our idea of, you know, the idea of balance, et cetera. Um, but so, you know, and I, Chardonnay is similar. I mean, you know, like it's a great variety and I, and I think we make a delicious Chardonnay. And and I'm really, you know, again, throwing our voice out there and saying, this is our style of Chardonnay and it's pretty different. And and it's really fun to see people react to that. Like, it, you know, you go to tastings and people say, oh, I don't, don't, I don't want a Chardonnay. I can't stand Chardonnay. And I'm like, hey, what, what don't you like about it? Well, I don't like the popcorn. Trust me, just try this. It won't kill you. And then watch that smile. And then it's this really fun when they when they put it and they try it and they're like, oh my God, this is a Chardonnay? It's like, yeah, no, this is actually a Chardonnay. Would taste like the actual fruit that grows on this vine called Chardonnay, you know, and it's delicious. Yeah. And so, you know. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that because for a couple of years, actually, I went around telling everyone I don't like Chardonnay and I don't like Zinfandel because I tasted, well, a couple I won't name, but on the Chardonnay side, just a huge oak and and just pure butter. And I kind of just spit it out. I'm like, oh, and then on the Zinfandel side, it was just boom, it hit me over the head with alcohol. It was just so sweet. 
And then I tried um, some of the ones you're talking about there. And I was like, oh, wow, I actually really do like this varietal. <laughs> yeah, totally. Zinfandel's another one. We make, we love making Zinfandel. It's fun to send, especially to export, because they love Zinfandel in Europe because it's exotic for them. And, and it, just, it just blows people's minds when they have a, you know, a red-fruited, crunchy-fruited complex on the, on the more savory side as Zinfandel. And, um, but then, you know, I mean, we love, I love the weird, like we have Patino, like, you know, Rebola Gialla, you know, the more esoteric ones are really fun to make. It's really fun to do. I mean, I like making, um, we make a, like Mouved and Grenache Syrah a lot. You know, they do so well in California. And again, they don't have to be ultra ripe. And they're getting it, especially Mouved, getting those crazy savory characters. Um, you know, it's one one that we let Brett go in it because I think it just really plays in it with that savoriness in such an interesting and delicious way. You know, I'm a, I've had some really old Chateau Neuf de Pops that kind of blew my mind. And I just, I, you know, that Brett Mouved Grenache marriage is really, can be really exciting, I think. And, um, you know, but we, you know, like, um, you know, Cortese under Tondu, Cortese and Vermentino are really fun for us. I get a lot, really, a lot of pleasure out of that because it's really, um, like make, like I love Muscadet and Pink Pool Blanc and this, like, I love like this salty, clean, bright whites that are, that for washing down seafood and just drinking. And, um, and I think they're totally underrated in terms of complexity. And so being able to do that with Vermentino or with Cortese is a lot of fun. And being able to offer like a $16 bottle of wine for people that's from organic fruit that's handmade is, feels really good. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask you about next was the Tendu. Or is it yeah. Tendu? I'm going to make sure I'm yeah. pronouncing it pr- pr- right. So um, Eric, Eric, also from the New York Times here, um, wrote a piece this was way early in the year january 2020 but i think it was 20 reds under 20 bucks obviously make the red and the white but there's been a handful of labels i'll say coming out with lower price wine sometimes it's under a brand new label sometimes it's kind of the same the same label and the same brand but it will be kind of a lower cost option is that something that you're looking to do more of or at least keep this one going or maybe experiment with some other varietals that you haven't yet yeah. in different parts of California that's cheaper? Or where do you see that going? Well, we added on point? last year, we added on um, Muved. We call it Mataro because that's the synonym, kind of more of a California tradition to the Tondu. And so um, right now we're not experimenting because um, we're kind of happy with our two whites, two reds. We have our, but just trying to find our place for that in the market. But I tried, we tried a little bit carrying on, it didn't work in the blend, but we were able, you know, that was kind of, you know, I was kind of surprised about that. And our red blend for Tondu is Aleonico, Montepulciano and Barbera. And, you know, you get earthiness from the Aleonico and kind of a nice red cherry fruit from the Montepulciano and nice bright acid from the Barbera. And every time I think like Sinso will work in there or Kunwa's or Carignan just doesn't work in there. It's weird. And so, so um, even though they're all delicious wines. So 
um, you know, we're going to try some canning with the tondu this year because we, we kegged a bunch of it up because we always do a lot of kegs of tondu for restaurants. But since restaurants are closed, we're going to take our kegs and we're going to um, put them in cans instead. And, um, I, and so I really like that, you know, trying to get, you know, again, affordable because the whole point of tondu is affordable everyday wine that is actually handmade and, and, um, like there's no additives, like, you know, I mean, that's basically, again, it's a natural wine. I mean, it's, you know, we don't add anything. We add a little bit of SO2 for the Vermentino, but the reds are, you know, I mean, it's all uninoculated, no acid, no yeast, no yeast food, no sulfur, nothing. But we're just really careful and we bottle it early and the wines are really clean and fresh. And so, um, so it's, you know, and they're affordable. So that's just, you know, the idea there is just, you know, just really, you know, we don't honestly make a lot of money on the tondu because it's really hard to hit that price point. But it just feels really good to um, give the people, a, a you know, just a, a honest, affordable, real wine, you know. Yeah, that really embodies the phrase of nothing added, nothing taken away. And at least for that particular wine, as you mentioned, and fans will definitely be looking forward to the cans. I think that is pretty cool that you're going to come out with those. Something like you said, super affordable and hopefully an intro to your brand. And especially for younger people, that's kind of been the trend of some of the business side of wine marketing is getting millennials or, or let's say younger millennials into or even what is it gen z now i guess yeah <laughs> during 21 getting them a, an entry-level wine and like you said a really high quality product at a price point they can afford um and doing kegs and cans and things like that and as an introduction to your brand and as they move there through their career and hopefully eventually join the wine list uh, the wine club and get access to more expensive stuff, but different things. Uh, I think that will be an interesting part of the business going forward. So it's great that you're going to be keeping up and kind of following through and keeping that kind of brand going there um, or label going there. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was the vermouth, which uh, I actually haven't tasted. I, I plan to, but it looks so good right there on the website here. I'm looking at it right now. What's the story behind that? Okay, so we um so we we've always been big vermouth drinkers in our family, and um, we always like sweet vermouth, you know, um, as an aperitif, not not as much as a mixer. And so when we were living in Davis, and I was working down in in Merced, and my wife was working for the Community Alliance with Family Farmers, which was like a nonprofit for saving the family farm. She worked there for over ten years. They were really big, you know, big part of like the local food movement back in the nineties. So um, we thought, God, vermouth is like, like this is before we started Mathiasen in 2003, like the, our own winery. And so this is, we were home winemakers. We thought that God, vermouth, because it has the fruits and herbs and botanicals, you know, it, it's, it's like really a, like something that we could do locally, that we could do like a, at the time Davis is in Yolo County, we could do a Yolo County vermouth. And it was really we just thought that would be super cool. And um, and I went and did a bunch of research in the UC Davis library on vermouth because they used to make a lot of vermouth in California back in like the right out after prohibition. And there's a bunch of really a lot of good information on it because everyone, the vermouth has like, the, it's so secretive and it was kind of intimidating, like how the, you know, like, like people like they're, 
firstborn son orally gets the recipe and you know all this sort of mythologizing around it and so we i found enough information to kind of get a handle on some of the basics of how it tends to be done but then we just couldn't get it together and we were like oh, again you know we just didn't have the money we had a little a fresh baby who's 22 years old now and we we're just like we can't this is never so i just put all that stuff in a file and that was that and then our dessert wine which is flora that we had made in our first vintage was 2010 um, um, because it was like an homage to Davis because, you know, Davis gets a bad rap, but it's just an agricultural school. They don't teach you in Davis to make manipulated wine. They just teach you the chemistry of wine and then you do whatever the hell you, you're going to go do, right? They're just like, here's what is actually happening as best we know. That's all. And it's just, the place is old and goes back and there's a lot of history there. And um, I just loved my time there. And, you know, going through the library and the old, the, all the collections of different fruit trees and grapevines they have. They have tons of collections. They have tons of people that have worked on those collections for years that are walking encyclopedias. It's a cool place. And so, um, so it's kind of an homage to do the flora because that v- variety was bred at Davis across between Gewurztraminer and Semyon. That was bred in the 1940s, released in the 50s for a dessert wine fortified wines because that was the bedrock of the industry like when they're making all their vermouths so we were made our dessert wine out of flora problem is we're you know it we don't we're not big manipulators as you can gather and so we don't really have a good way of stopping the fermentation on a wine and it fermented too far and we lost too much sugar and it was and it got up to like 16 percent alcohol and i just didn't think it was balanced anymore is the dessert wine. I didn't know what to do. And sommelier that was could come out from San Francisco named Jal would um to help us and he'd work for us on his day off. We we're tasting he's like, this would be a great base for a sweet vermouth. And I was just like, oh my God, because we because we left it no sulfur. It was kind of nutty and oxidized. Kind of had in it a little bit reminiscent of Antica Carpano. And I was like, man, that's genius. And I have all these res- all these recipes in this file folder from you know 15 years before that and i dug them all up and we started making we got our hands on some blessed thistle wormwood chinchona bark gentian bark all this stuff started doing the making a bunch of extractions did a bunch of trials and you know, use fresh fruits our own our own sour cherries our own fresh blood um orange zest blood orange zest so i figured out that i didn't like the dried um coriander and um and kind of came up with with a um formula that really you can taste the ingredients right it's not a lot of those formulas i think they're looking for reproducibility so they have like 30 ingredients because they want you know if you if you go get a bottle of antica carpano it has to taste like antica carpano well think about it for a second that's like a wine so there's vintage variability and you have those are all natural herbs and spices so how do they get that that uniformity because it's a massive formula that they can tweak with and maintain the uniformity so in our case we don't care about that because every there there it's it's batch dated and if the batches are a little different that's okay so you can so we can go with a simpler formula that you can actually taste the ingredients so you can taste the cherries you can taste the orange you can taste the cardoons which is what we end up with our bittering that we grow you can taste the flavors of the actual wine and um so it's like basically a farmhouse um vermouth 
Yeah, it looks so delicious when I'm looking at the flavors right there and you just kind of described it. What's the your favorite way of enjoying that particular uh, creation there? Oh, I, I like it neat, basically, this with a chill on it. And we, we, we have it with dessert. Or, it, I mean, if you're going to mix with it, um, like it makes a phenomenal Manhattan. And we probably sell half of that is being, is for Manhattans. Wow. Because it's already like in Manhattan already with like the cherry and the long barrel aging because it's three years yeah. in barrel. And then, and then so people, like Negronis uh, um, are really great with it. Some people like get a little creative and do like blood and sand or things like that. So most people are at buy our vermouth are doing cocktail mixers. Um, some, sometimes we'll do a wine dinner. We'll just stretch it, but it's really delicious. We'll make a spritzer. And just, you know, with a little either Prosecco or champagne or sparkling water and like, a, you know, like a, like if you can twist with a twist blood orange, that's really good. We just did a thing in Copenhagen right before the shutdown and they did it with, they, they um, dehydrated sliced blood orange slices and then put that in as the garnish and they kind of rehydrated in there and they gave it like that the nuttiness that was really delicious. But, you know, when we do a wine dinner, typically we'll do it at the um at, with the dessert course and it's great with chocolate or great with like a spice cake or anything like that yeah yeah it looks delicious for anyone who hasn't tried it we're going to put a link right here to the website and uh, people can pick up a bottle but uh steve this was really great having you on and um really appreciate it thank you thanks for having me and thanks for you know being as big of a geek as me and care and wanting to listen to me ramble about all this stuff this I love it. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at GoldenWestPod, or you can email us at GoldenWestPodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.